Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel Pearland. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord Messiah Jesus who died on the cross so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life if you give your heart and believe what He's done for you. You'll be set for life with the treasure stored up in heaven when you're through. You'll be set for life. You'll be set uh, Malachi, his name means me- my messenger. My messenger. He was a prophet that lived during the times of, in the days of Nehemiah. Malachi was sent by God with a message of judgment to the Israelites that they were plagued with corrupt priests. It was, it was corrupt in the ministry, basically, and they were corrupting how they even did temple work. They weren't doing it right the way God said, including the sacrifice work. They weren't doing that right. And so God sent Malachi to deliver a message to them. They saw no value in God's work. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had anybody before? You loved them and you put into them and you said, I'm here for you. And you, you invested into them. You wanted to be with them. And at every chance, they preferred to be with someone else but you. Everybody else but you. Kind of a big letdown feel, right? They saw no value in you. And, they even, and did they even get to a point where they questioned your sincerity? and questioned your integrity, and now you're the bad guy all of a sudden. That's what the Israelites were doing with God. That was the attitude they had with God in Malachi. And so God sent them a messenger. Malachi 1 and 1, the burden of the Lord, uh, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now already, verse 1, I'm already going to stop a minute, and I'm going to say, look, we already have somewhat of a threatening nature in that verse. Because the text says the burden, the burden of the Lord. This, God's message to Israel was going to expect repentance. His message is, is going to be of a nature. It says, I expect you to change something here. And the burden, it's a burden to do that. It was going to be a burdensome word for the people to hear it. Then it says the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Now, typically, okay, Malachi is a, a book of one of the prophets. You've got these Old Testament stories, and, and you've got the New Testament and all that in, in the Gospels. But right before the Gospels, you've got all these prophetic books, prophet books. And so they came in announcing the word of the Lord. Prophets usually came at a time when Israel was not listening. They weren't hearing. And so the prophet came, the word of the Lord, guys. God wanted to get the people attentive to what he had to say. And this opening would have would have woke them up. The burden of the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Malachi 1 and 2, Israel, beloved of God. God says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob, I have loved. Now, when you get called into the principal's office, you know, I don't know if y'all have ever been there. I have many times. Okay, good for you, two shoes. I have. I have been called in the principal's office before. (laughs) 
And when you get called in the principal's office, the last thing you expect to hear is, I love you. What? I thought I was in trouble. You are. But I love you. And that's what he said, that this book's opening has a serious tone. But the first thing said after that is, I have loved you, says the Lord. God loves Israel. And even though they're kind of in trouble right now, he wanted to make sure up front that they understood that his covenant relationship with them is based on love. Not what you're doing, but because I love you. That's why you're safe with me. I loved you. Israel had fallen off in sin, not really believing that God had loved them. Well, we're having trouble. God must not love us. And the first thing God says is, I love you. I have loved you. And, it, and their falling off caused them to get so blind to God that they were actually questioning God. Oh, yeah? What way have you loved us? How? You hear that? That tone? So you can see that God is trying to get their attention through a question and answer method here. He's using question and answer methods to get their attention. Israel had recently been taken off as captives, which is probably why they didn't trust God at this point in time right now. But the Israelites that had come back, if they had reviewed the covenant in Deuteronomy, if they had studied the covenant God made with them, they would have understood that all their trouble was the result of their disobedience. Their trouble was not the cause of their disobedience. They're in trouble because they messed up. And so that's why God is saying to them, I have loved you. He's saying, I didn't leave you. You left me. You disobeyed me. And that's why you have all this trouble. And so God brings up the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the man who ended up becoming Israel. He was named Israel, the man that this whole covenant nation is named for. And he said, Jacob, I have loved. He's trying to tell Israel, I loved you all the way from the start. Jacob, I have loved. Malachi 1 and 3, but, now they all hang on for this, but Esau I have hated. <laughs> you ever seen God say he hated somebody? Okay, read it. But Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Now I'm going to ask again, does anybody see the biblical text that actually says that God hates somebody? You don't hear about that often, do you? This may shock a lot of people here in this one for the first time. People always say God loves everyone, but the text says, Esau, I have hated. I mean, y'all do see this. How do we make sense out of God hating someone if God is a God of love? First off, I want to say that we have to consider that God's love is not like man's love, and God's hate is not like man's hate. It's different than ours. <laughs> In fact, if you read Proverbs 6, it lists six things that God hates. There are things that God hates. Because God is good. He has to hate it because God is good. But God loving Jacob and hating Esau has nothing to do with the human emotions of love and hate. It's not like what we're thinking of. So considering the text, God loving Jacob but hating Esau is different. It has everything to do with God choosing one man and his descendants while rejecting another man and his descendants. God chose Jacob. He rejected Esau, his sovereign will to choose. God rejected Esau. Now, remember, Israel had been asking, in what way have you loved us? You love us? How? And so God is explaining the way he loved them. He loved them by choosing them. I chose you. I did not reject you like he, like he had rejected doing with Esau's descendants who were called Edomites. 
Esau's descendants were called Edomites. Now, Malachi 1 and 4. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord have indignation forever. You got a wicked group of people here, and they are not going to be chosen to be God's special people. Both Israel and Edom had been subjected to judgment at times by God, but God always promised to restore the Israelites because of his covenant promises. He promised to get them somewhere. He's always going to bail them out. He's always going to save them and restore them. So Israel's asking, how did you, how did you love us? He's telling him, it's like, look at the difference between you and the Edomites, and you should be able to see obvious. I tear down what they build, but you I restore. There's your evidence how I have loved you. God was not offering to restore the Edomites, but instead he would tear down everything they tried to build up. Any Israelite that knew their history would now start to see the proof of how God really loved them, simply by the way that God would always restore Israel back every time they got knocked down. That's how I loved you. (laughs) So good. Now, God did not restore the Edomites. Now, I'm telling you, any Israelite who read these first few verses should by now realize it is good to be an Israelite. (laughs) We got covenant promise. So nice. Now, maybe they would be thinking, too, maybe we should just start trusting him again. Maybe we should stop questioning him. And it's interesting how the Edomites lived in what became known as the territory of wickedness. But what do the Israelites live in today? What's their place called? The Holy Land. They live in the Holy Land, but the Edomites, the place of wickedness. See the, the, the difference? In what way have you loved us? Here's how. Just take a look around, guys, and you'll see it. What a contrast. Wicked land over here, holy land over there. By now they should start to see what God meant when he says, I loved you. Malachi 1 and 5, look. Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, once an Israelite saw and realized the difference between the Holy Land compared with the territory of wickedness, they should be able to see. Your eyes will be able to see. They should be able to see that the God of Israel is great and powerful even beyond the borders of Israel. As it states, no one can claim that God is only God in Israel. Guys, I live in America. I live in the United States, and he's God here, as he is in Israel, too. They have the covenant, but he's God over here. He saved me over here. It's not just within their borders. God's reach stretches out to all the nations. But Israel had failed to honor God properly. And so now the seriousness of their condition was starting to clearly become realized. Now they're starting to see what's wrong. Malachi 1 and 6 about polluted offerings. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Okay, so the Lord used their cultural understanding of honoring parents, which is something they did. He used that to ask a question. If I'm the father, where's my honor? You honor your fathers and all that, and where's mine? 
This would get the Israelites to think about the fact that if they considered themselves to be a nation that is a son of the Lord, then they should. Then why should they be less obedient to God than they are to their own natural parents? Where's my honor? You know how sometimes kids talk back to you? God was addressing talk back here. He's addressing Israel's talk back. Oh yeah, God? How have you loved us? In what way have we despised your name? God focused that question right square on the priest who were supposed to be teaching the rest of Israel how to have reverence for God. That was the priests who were supposed to be doing that, and they weren't. And so God put that question on them. How have we despised your name? Okay, priests, this one's for you. And so he tells them exactly how they did it, exactly how they despised his name. Malachi 1 and 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say... In what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible, which means worthless, not worth anything, not very important. That's what they were saying. Oh, this work we're doing is not very important. I mean, we'll kind of do it, but they're not doing it right. I want to show you something from uh, Leviticus 22. Defiled food on the altar should have been enough reason for the priest to repent. They were given instructions how to do this properly, acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices, what they should be. Leviticus 22 and 2. Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. By what you dedicate to the Lord God, if you don't do it right, if you're not right with God, it profanes him. And then verse 32, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So the priest, basically, it's not that they weren't doing their best. They weren't even trying. They weren't even trying to do right in the first place at all. They were giving substandard sacrifices below standard. There, we did it. Just enough to say we did it. But they weren't really putting anything into it. It became religion, not love. Oh, we're supposed to do it. Let's go do the sacrifice. There, poof, got it done. All right, what's next? That's not very caring. And so they had become hardened to what they were doing. And you can tell by their questioning of God. How have we defiled your name? In what way have we defiled you? You can tell that they have begun to rationalize their own sin. They're not doing the sacrifices right, so now we're going to question God. Oh, yeah? How did we do this wrong? They're trying to make themselves right. How dare anybody? Who are we to question God? They've begun to rationalize their sin. We haven't done anything wrong, so you tell us, how have we wronged you? Malachi's message to them is starting to get them to see that they are practically daring God to spell out their wrongs for them. Don't do that. You can say, Lord God, show me, search me out and show me, but don't question, God, what have I done to you? Come on. Don't have that. He'll show you. God is showing them that they they were saying the table of the Lord was contemptible, meaning it's dirty, pitiful, despicable, cheap. What the priests were doing is they were offering dirty, cheap, substandard sacrifices on the altar of, of the one God who brought them out of Egypt. The God that brings you out of your bondage, you don't give him substandard sacrifices. He saved you. 
Give him your best. (laughs) They were calling the table of the Lord contemptible. Have you ever been used as though somebody considered you cheap? Doesn't feel good, does it? You ever been used, taken advantage of? You're cheap. You're not really worth much. That's what they were doing in their sacrifice work. That's what the priests were doing to the Lord. And it was profaning and despising him. Malachi 1 and 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle my fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Whoo! Guys, that's scary. That's scary. Here's more detail on the low quality of the sacrifices the priests had been offering. First off, why do you think priests would bring in these faulty animals as sacrifices? Lame, sick, diseased, blind animals. Why do you think priests would bring these in, these kind of animals? My thought is because those animals were not of any use to the priest. The priest says, I want to keep the best stuff for me, for my use. These people were making sacrifices out to be more like checking a box. There I did my sacrifice, but they weren't giving their best as God required. They were keeping the better animals for themselves for their own gain. This kind of behavior indicates someone who believes that God cannot provide, that God cannot deliver, that God cannot restore, that God cannot replenish. And so they've got to keep the best stuff for themselves because to them, God is not trustworthy enough of taking care of them better than they are. We're going to keep the best stuff for us. Put the sick animals on God's table. Profanes him. It defiles him. God has always given Israel his best. After all, when you think about it, he sent Jesus. And so he says, try giving a sacrifice as bad as this to your governor. See what he thinks about it. (laughs) Governors had these elaborately set up banquets that they would have, and people brought these offerings from the the people. Now, if the governor had seen meat from a blind, crippled, or a diseased animal on his table, even the governor would have rejected it. The governor's not going to have that. The idea here is that it was absurd. When mere men would turn down such a sacrifice, why would God take it? And then when he said, when the Lord said, who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? He meant that if this is how it's going to be, then somebody might as well just shut the whole temple down. If it's going to be like this, who's going to shut the door? Basically, he said, this is unacceptable. Malachi 1 and 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Imagine a Jewish person hearing that. Gentiles, what? Them? My name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it 
And that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? This pains me, guys. This attitude still goes on. Where's the temple now? It's right here. It's us who believe. The Israelites were treating the offerings of God as such a troublesome thing that they had to do. It's like when you tell your kids to go clean their room, and they go, all right. They were treating it like that. They'll do it because you told them to, but to them, it's, oh, what a weariness. They'll do it, but, oh, what a weariness. And they will sneer at having to do it. It makes them make a sour face. Oh, i got to do the sacrifice again. Oh, so tired of this. Not only were they bringing imperfect sacrifice animals, but they were also stealing animals from other people to make them sacrifices. Stealing animals. There was corruption and greed in the sacrifices. Sacrifice means the opposite of greed, doesn't it? You don't steal a sacrifice. You give your own. Sacrifice means you give your best. The people were seriously tainting the entire sacrifice process, and they took it to such an ir- as being such an irritating chore uh, with the attitude of, well, there we did it, check that box off the list, that they didn't have their heart in it, and it was defiled. They were doing the work religiously, but their love of God was not in it. They missed the entire meaning of why they were doing sacrifices in the first place, so that it would cover their sin, so that their relationship with God would be pure, so that they could experience God's blessings. That's what this work was for. Relationship and love. God says, I have loved you. And you look at me like a big bothersome problem. Not worth the time. They missed the whole meaning of sacrifices in the first place. Friends, if you want a nice clean house, you got to take the garbage out now and then, <laughs> or else you end up breathing foul air. We've had a lot of nice, nice, cool, low humidity air lately, and sometimes I don't realize the garbage needs taken out because I've got the house opened up. When you close it, you start to realize the garbage is there. You got to get it out of the house. Well, Israel was so closed up in their, oh, we got to do all this stuff that the garbage was starting to, they were breathing this stuff. And it was making them foul along with it. God wanted them to clean things up again so they could get to know him better. They would come to know his love and what he had done for them. He wanted them to stop treating his offerings like it was such a problem to not treat it with contempt as though offerings were worthless. Because the offerings were for them with their relationship with God. Malachi 1 and 14. But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. In this passage, Malachi switches from talking about mandatory sacrifices. What we're talking about is mandatory. You had to do these sacrifices. But now he switches to talking about payment vows. Payment vows. Payment vows could be like a peace offering which was a way that someone could thank God for his generosity, a way to express thanks, or, or a way to praise God for his goodness. 
Thank you for listening to Set for Life. We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen of Calvary Chapel, Pearland, located in Pearland, Texas. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless, you are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life, you'll have-